please turn with me to the book of John chapter 4. John 4, verse 43, to the end of the chapter. Quick disclaimer. Uh, so, this morning I, I felt led to change uh, several things in kind of the sermon this morning, and that includes some of uh, some scripture references. So, there might be some scripture references that you won't see up on the screen. So, I, I apologize for that. I apologize for individuals who worked on the PowerPoint slides. Uh, the last point especially will be a little different. Um, actually, the, almost the entire last point of, has kind of changed. Um, so, uh, I think, so if you're following on the bulletin insert, um, the last point, I, uh, what did it say? It said, I think there was two and then A and B. And then B says, uh, in the bulletin, it says, cling to Jesus. You can scratch that if you're following along. Uh, that point is actually, uh, remember, faith is objective, not subjective. And I'll repeat that later on. But I say that because that, you won't see that on the screen, because again, I changed this last minute. So, if you're with, there with me in John 43, John 4, verse 43. We'll read to the end of the chapter. It says, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we, as we sit under your word this morning. Help us to believe in the truths of your word. May we, may we be encouraged by what your word says. I pray that you would help me as I, as I walk through this passage Help me to uh, communicate in a clear way. And I also pray that your church would, uh, would follow along with me, that your church would be Bereans and examining the truths of your word and seeing for themselves. We thank you for your word. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
oftentimes what belief or faith means for people is, is a hope for the best possible outcome. But the thing is, is that there isn't always a guarantee or a certainty that that, that, uh, that best and possible outcome will actually come to pass. But for you and I, you and I have a very different definition of what it means to believe or to have faith. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Right, there's that key word assurance, that we can have confidence. Belief and faith are, is, which are synonyms, but it is a running theme to the gospel of John. And according to his gospel, and the entire Bible for that matter, there are three main elements of faith. And here they are. Let me give them to you. First, it is a firm conviction producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation or truth. Again, it's a firm conviction producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation or truth. Number two, a personal surrender to Him. Number three, a conduct inspired by such surrender. So all three elements are necessary in order to have true and genuine faith. So unless one, if, if you have one of those, but we're missing two, or if you had two of those and missing one of those, then you do not have genuine faith. And there's this phenomenon in the Scriptures from the Old Testament to the New, especially in the Gospels, there's this phenomenon of God revealing Himself through various ways, through different methods, through different individuals, and yet, it doesn't produce the kind of faith that God requires His people to have. So take the Exodus, for example. God's people are in slavery in Egypt, and God means to redeem His people from slavery. And He performs signs and wonders. He turns the, the rivers into blood. He sends locusts. He sends a deep darkness to cover the entire land. He... Uh, he takes the life of every firstborn child in every household of Egypt while sparing those of the household of Israel. And then taking them through the desert, God parts the sea so they can walk on dry land. And then once they have walked across safely, then God brings those waters to come upon the, the armies of Egypt. Right, so God has revealed himself through these different ways. Now, did his people have faith in God? according to these three main ingredients of faith? Did they have a firm conviction producing a full acknowledgement of God's self-revelation? No. Because when Moses was tearing up in the mountain, taking a little longer than people expected, the people made a golden calf, which they described as the, the God who delivered them from Egypt. That was their God. Did they show a personal surrender to the Lord their God? They didn't. They instead surrendered to this golden calf. And later on, when they were ready to enter the promised land, a land that God assured them of having, they refused to enter because of fear of the people. And so they failed to surrender to the Lord. Did they show a conduct inspired by such surrender? No. They worshiped the golden calf, right? And then often oftentimes complained about God and complained about his leaders. Now, fast forward to the Gospel of John. Signs and wonders are being done again by Jesus Christ himself. But the thing we need to know about miracles is that miracles 
are intended to open the door to true and genuine faith. But many times people will not walk through that door. So we're going to dig a little deeper into the topic of faith, specifically genuine faith, as we work through this passage. And I just have two points, a bizarre decision and concluding with genuine faith. So this particular narrative, or this section concludes with the healing of the official son. It says that this sign, this is the second sign that Jesus performed. Now, before we walk through the passage, I think it's important that we take a look back and kind of do a recap of what's happened so far, beginning in chapter 2. Because that's where we see the, the first sign. So in John chapter 2, Jesus was at a wedding in Cana, and then the wine runs out. And then in John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, it did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and then so on and so forth. So Jesus turns the water into wine. And then we have this odd statement at the end of John chapter 2 in verse 23 where it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Sounds good. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So the turning of water into wine was not the only sign that Jesus performed. He performed many other signs. However, those who believed according to this last section in, the chapter, in John chapter 2, it tells us that those who believe showed a, a flawed or a flaky kind of faith, a faith that is solely based on the miracles themselves, and that's it. And then we get to chapter 3, and the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, a conversation about being born again, and also about Jesus' identity. Nicodemus believes certain things about Jesus based on Jesus' teachings and also based on the miracles that he's witnessed Jesus perform. But he hasn't walked through the, the door of genuine faith yet. He's, he's closer, though. He's closer than those individuals that we just read about at the end of John chapter 2 who showed a flawed faith. But it still wasn't enough. The problem is not the amount of faith, but the problem is the object of faith. Believing in Jesus as a teacher or even as a miracle worker is not going to do. That doesn't cut it. That doesn't get you to salvation. People don't have a problem with Jesus when he performs signs. But the faith that miracles produces is problematic because it is solely based on the miracles, and that is superficial faith. And superficial faith tends to die when Jesus begins to communicate divine content. And you'll see that through the book of John, specifically in John chapter 6. And then we have John the Baptist's witness of Jesus' identity, giving us more divine content. He tells us of the person of Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom. He's the one who's come from heaven. He's the one who is greater. And then that section concludes with an additional comment, additional comments by the author in which he summarizes the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And verse 36 of John 3 is key. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a divining line between life and death. And the only way to cross that line is by believing. And then last week, we walked through this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and Jesus offering the, the Samaritan woman eternal life, the, this, this water of eternal life. And what he essentially is talking about is believing in him. He's asking the woman to believe in him. And that event ends with the townsfolk coming to Jesus in response to the woman's testimony. They come to Jesus. They hear from Jesus. And they themselves come to the conclusion this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so they believe in the content of Jesus' words. And then that brings us to the healing of the official son and the second sign done in Cana of Galilee. So what the author has done is, is kind of he's, he's given us this, what's, uh, what's called an inclusio. In John chapter 2, and then John 4, 43 to 54 are kind of bookends to a section. So when you see this kind of this rhetorical device in the Gospels, it's intended for the purpose of highlighting what's important, and that is what's in the middle. So John chapter 2, Jesus performs a sign. It ends with a flawed faith. And then here at the end of John chapter 4, well, then we have also another sign, and there's also a comment about faith. And so it produces kind of like this sandwich, right? Like any sandwich, like the bread might be good, but it's the stuff that's in the middle that's most important. That's what we're really after. And that's what John is trying, the author is trying to get us to really to really uh, take a hold of. It's the stuff that's in the middle between these two bookends. So if you pay a careful attention to what's in the middle, we can better understand the statement that Jesus makes here in the passage this morning about the people's inability to believe apart from miracles. The most important thing about the ministry of Jesus Christ are not the miracles, but it is his words. It's the divine content. Because in the middle, right in between these two bookends, Jesus tells us that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven apart from believing in him, about, apart from being born again. In the middle, we also read that Jesus is from heaven, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is the son of man, son of God, the light of the world, the bridegroom, the one who has the father's affirmation and the one who has the father's greatest affection. Jesus is the one that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. Jesus is the new temple of worship. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the living water of eternal life. Jesus is the Savior of the world. All that information is contained and just in the middle section of these two chapters, of chapters two to four. All that is right there. Maybe you realize that or not. And that's incredible. And I'm telling you, if you look through it and study a little bit more carefully, you'll find a lot, it says a lot more than what I just read to you. All that is in the middle the middle section is written to highlight for us the identity of Jesus Christ. That's what matters most. That's the meat. That's the divine content that we need to look to. So then, now we're ready to talk about this, this last bookend. So verse 43 tells us that Jesus, after two days, he departed for Galilee. And then it says in parentheses, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So Jesus is headed back to Galilee, which is his home turf, kind of broadly speaking. 
He left Samaria, is now is, he's coming back to his own people. But there's an interesting note in this parenthesis. It tells us that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Actually, it tells us that after two days, he departed for Galilee, and it says, for Jesus himself had testified that no prophet has honor in his own hometown. Right, so in other words, this little proverb is telling us that if you're looking for any honor, you're not going to go back to your own hometown, right, because you're not going to get it. Right, because what is this? Wait, isn't this, this is Jesus. This is the carpenter's son. I grew up down the street from him. I, I grew up with him. We used to play together. Wait, he's the Messiah? How can this one be the Messiah? I remember one time going to a, a concert outside, and there was this individual who, who got up, who was performing, but before he performed, he just, he said that, uh, he kind of claimed to say that, uh, that, that he used to open up for these big name artists, right? And then I, and I got a good look at him, and I'm thinking to myself, wait, I think that guy lives down the road from me. I kind of, so I, I found it a little hard to believe, like, wait, I, I, I've seen this guy before, I've seen him at the grocery store, I kind of, I find it hard to believe that this guy was, it claimed to, to be who he was, and when he performed, it literally wasn't that good anyways. That kind of give you another indicator that maybe he wasn't what he said he was. But that's kind of the idea. And even though Jesus expected no honor from his own hometown, he went there anyway. But then it tells us in verse 45 that the people welcomed him. I mean, that sounds like a little bit like honor to me, doesn't it? But verses 44 to 45 tells us that Jesus was looking for a certain kind of honor, an honor that he was not going to get in Galilee. So when the people welcomed him, the reception, the reception of him, Jesus expected that. But it's not the kind of reception that Jesus deserved. And what clues you into this, notice that the passage tells you that these people were at the feast where Jesus performed many other signs. So these people are the same people back in chapter 2, who witnessed the signs, the same people that Jesus would not entrust himself to because they had this superficial faith. So the people were honoring him as a miracle worker and not as the son of God and everything else that we've learned about Jesus in the middle of these chapters. And the response of his own people should give us a little surprise just given the kind of information that we have between chapters 2 and 4. But the people, the, the people did not have the three main ingredients of faith. Now, you might think that there isn't enough evidence in the narrative to tell you they didn't have that kind of faith. But Jesus himself tells us that they're missing those key ingredients because it tells you, he says, unless you see signs, you will not believe. So Jesus is aware of their faith, that it wasn't the right kind of faith. And what makes this even more surprising, what just happened before Jesus coming into Galilee, right? Jesus went to Samaria to, to essentially to preach the gospel to a Samaritan woman, which results in the townspeople coming to Jesus, to being drawn to Jesus. And now, as we walked through that passage last week, or maybe you've read that passage before, but have you ever noticed that Jesus performed no signs, no miracles when he was in Samaria? Not a single one. All he did was provide people with this divine content. So those people, those who were not even his own people, they displayed the right kind of faith. They, they, they showed the right kind of reception towards Jesus. 
They believed in the divine content. So then having heard of Jesus by the woman's testimony, and then having come to Jesus themselves and hearing from Jesus, having heard with their own ears this divine content, they come to believe in Jesus, not as the miracle worker, not as the teacher, not as one who performs these signs, but as the one who is the Savior of the world, as the one who speaks these, this, this divine content. And I'm led to think that they show, that they do show this right kind of faith because Jesus himself says, as they're coming to him, that he is reaping fruit of eternal life. Jesus then turns to, returns to his own people and all they want is more miracles. But why did Jesus go back to Galilee if he expected to receive no honor, at least not the kind of honor he was looking for? And that's because even though Galilee was his current destination, it wasn't his final destination. John 3, 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Luke 24, 6, when the tomb is empty, the angels say, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus' final destination was the cross. That is where he was headed. And Jesus will not reach his final destination by avoiding his people, but actually by going to his people. Now, part of the reason why Jesus ministers to his own people because they, they are his own people. They are God's chosen people from the very beginning. And so that is his first, that is his primary audience. That is his primary target with the gospel. But let's also not forget that it was, also, that it was his own people who delivered him through crucifixion. Jesus has to come to his own people so that they will know him enough to get to the point where they will hate him enough to deliver him over to Pilate, who will then deliver him over to crucifixion. And crucifixion is good news for us because the crucifixion is the only means of salvation. And so at the end of the, at the, end of the day, they were only moving forward God's plan of salvation. So Jesus came again to Galilee. People are expecting more signs. And then in their midst comes this official who worked directly under Herod Antipas, who was the governor or the ruler of, of Galilee. And he asked Jesus to come and heal his son. And in his frustration, Jesus responds, not just to him, but to all the people, to all those who are surrounding him, to his own people, saying, unless you see signs, you will not believe. So you see, even this official has come to Jesus as the miracle worker, as the one who can alleviate his present distress. But then that leads to genuine faith. Picking it back up in our passage, it says the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. 
So the official, having heard that Jesus was back in Galilee, having heard of Jesus and his miracles, he traveled from Capernaum, which was approximately about 16 miles, to come and see Jesus. Now, if we were in his shoes, we would too, right? If our child was on the brink of death, then we would travel no matter the distance to go to somebody who could help. Right, and even on the way there, he was probably thinking, my child, well, he was probably hoping that his child had not passed away while he's traveling. The official comes to Jesus and asks that he come with him and travel back 16 miles to heal his son. But the, uh, the official is no different than the others, than the Galileans, who just welcome Jesus as a miracle worker. Because notice that the official addresses Jesus as sir. Sir, Please come down and heal my son. To him, Jesus was the answer to his distress, the one who could bring peace to this moment of trouble and heal his son. If you have genuine faith, you're not going to address Jesus as sir. You're going to address him as Lord. Now, the man could have commanded Jesus to come with him. I mean, he was directly under Herod Antipas. He could have commanded him, Sir, I command you to come with me and come and heal my son. But when you're in a position of desperation, I mean, Titles don't matter anymore. This man was pleading and begging Jesus to come and heal his son. So he's displayed, at least, the right attitude. And then we see that there is something different about this official, something that distinguishes him from the rest of the crowd, because Jesus tells him to go back home and your son will live. And what does he do? He stops pleading, he stops begging, and he just walks away and heads back home. And this, so then this official shows genuine faith. And so this bookend concludes in a much more positive note than that first bookend at the end of John chapter 2. Well, it seemed that no one would show genuine faith in the person of Jesus Christ. This one tells us that this official shows true and genuine faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only him, but his entire household come to believe in the Savior. So no longer did the official believe in Jesus as the miracle worker, now, it's difficult to see if he had the same kind of faith that these Samaritans had when they heard Jesus for themselves. But at the very least, this man's faith has matured to a much greater and accurate level than those that Jesus would not initially entrust himself to. The official at first believed in Jesus because of his works, but by the end, he and his entire household believed in the person of Jesus. And so the the amount of faith is a, is a moot point. The object of his faith is what's most important. And it's the object of faith, it is that object that he and his whole household believed in. He believed in the word of Jesus, and then he just left. And then, having, and then he had his faith validated when he realizes that his son was healed at the same time that Jesus said, go, your son will live. And so, so you get an idea of the, of the kind of confidence that this man had, right? He believes the word of Jesus and he leaves. And it wasn't until the next day that he discovers that his son is living when his servants meet up with him, with him at some point in the middle. So at some point when he left after seeing Jesus, he makes his way back home. Maybe it gets dark out. And then he's like, stops at a hotel, goes to sleep and continues his journey the next day. Now, you would think that if he had any degree of doubt, he would go and travel through the entire night to make sure that his son was alive. But instead, he laid down and rest and continued his journey the next day. 
and he finds out that his son was healed at the same time that Jesus said, go, your son will live. I mean, you ask yourself, would you respond in the same way? If Jesus told you to go and to trust him, would you have the same reaction? There may be some here this morning who don't have the kind of faith that the gospel of John describes. You might believe some things about Jesus. You might believe in some of that divine content, but for whatever reason, you may not have yet surrendered your life to Jesus. And if that's the case, you have yet to show genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you don't believe at all. The Gospel of John makes it clear that there's this intimate connection between life and faith. The only way to have life, the only way to have true and everlasting life is to believe in the Son of God. The Son of God who died for sins sins that all people must pay back to God. Sin is our transgressions before God. Sin is our failure to live up to the ways that God prescribes for us. Sin is our failure to honor God with our lives, with our hearts, with our minds, with our affections. It's our failure to live for Him. And every sin is a debt that, is paid, that must be paid back to God. And the thing is, is that you can never pay back that debt. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this world, lived the perfect life so that he on the cross could take the debt of sin, pay it on our behalf so that all those who believe in him and trust in him and surrender to him will be forgiven of that debt and receive forgiveness in his name. That is the kind of faith that you're called to have. A faith based on the truth of what Jesus says about himself in his word a faith that requires a complete surrender to him and a faith that is inspired to live or to conduct your life in a manner that shows that you have indeed surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. It requires all those key ingredients. And then that leads me to a final, one final thought. That is to remember that faith, faith is objective, is not subjective. Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So let me tell you what that passage is not about. It is not about having all your needs met. That passage is not about never, ever having any lack 
or, having, or never having a need for anything. Now, not having something can produce something, and that is anxiety, stress, worry, fear, especially when they are things that we require for life, the necessities of life, such as food and clothing. But what is this passage primarily about? It is about trusting in the person of God. Subjective faith ebbs and flows with the circumstances of life. In moments of anxiety, does your faith tend to weaken? And I'm going to tell you, it shouldn't. Why? Because your faith should not be determined by your present circumstances, but your faith instead should be on the objective truth revealed in God's word, and that is on the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the point of that passage. The amount of faith does not matter as long as your faith is in the right person. Now, yes, the Lord wants you to grow in your faith. He, the Lord wants to, you to strength, be strengthened in your faith, and that doesn't happen apart from trials. But what he is teaching you more than anything else in those moments is to trust him, to trust who he is. He wants to remind you that faith is not objective, that it is not subjective, but it is objective. Consider the example of Job. In Job, 9, in Job 19, Job describes what his reality feels like. He's, it's, he says it's like having lost everything. He describes his life as being a stranger to his own wife, disgraced even by, or, and despised but even by uh, the, the, the children in the streets. He describes his life as one who's been abandoned and forgotten by his close friends and relatives. He's cast down and disgraced. And yet, he describes, he says this in Job 19. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Despite his present suffering, he finds hope in this Redeemer, a Redeemer, his Redeemer, one who will vindicate him, one who will justify him, one who will ultimately save him, one who will purchase his life. And while the hand of God has permitted these catastrophes to happen upon his life, he still chooses to hang on to the one who will ultimately deliver him. His faith wasn't determined by his present circumstances, and <laughs> he had terrible, terrible circumstances in his life. But he pushed through that and believed and trusted in the person of God. King David is another individual who suffered a lot of trials in his life. One in particular was because of his own, actually several of them were because of his own doing, because of his own sins. And towards the end of his life, he says in 2 Samuel 22, it's verse 1, it says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. And from the hand of Saul, he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. But these are the words coming from a man who went through a lot of trials in his life. His trust in the Lord, he trusted in his Lord. He trusted in the person of his God, his rock, his refuge, his Savior. That's what, he, that's what his God was to him. 
He trusted not in God's power to, to take away all the suffering, to take away all the trials, but he trusted in the person of God, the one who will ultimately deliver him and sustain him. In Matthew 17, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith in exercising a demon out of a young boy. And then he goes on to say in Matthew 17, 20, that the reason why they were not able to exercise the demon was because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. In Mark 11, it says something similar about moving a mountain in, into the sea. And the idea is not that greater faith produces greater works, but that faith in the person of Christ without doubting, is what produces the right results according to the will of God. And so we're called to put our faith in the person of Jesus without doubting, without wavering. Faith is a choice to trust in Jesus despite everything to the contrary. That if circumstances only get worse and worse and worse, that you would continue, that your faith would continue to rest in the person of Jesus Christ without doubting. One of the things that you hear over and over again when there are tragedies in the country caused by individuals is those comments made by those closest to that individual said, I would never have expected this person to do that. It seems so kind and gentle, and it's shocking to me that they would do such a thing. You will never, ever, ever Say that about the Lord. Yes, there's times you may be disciplined by the Lord because of sin. Yes, the Lord may have permitted certain things to happen to your life. Yes, it might seem like the Lord has abandoned you. Maybe it seems like prayer is not working. But when those things happen to your life, when it feels like that, you can trust his heart. His attitude towards you has not changed. You are still his son. You are still his daughter. He is still your Redeemer. He is still your Savior. You can trust that. Genuine faith is a matter of life and death. And there will always be situations that puts that, puts that faith to the test. But you need to remember to keep your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Without wavering, without doubting. Genuine faith, genuine faith is a precious thing. Not only because it is the means by which we are saved, we are saved by believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but genuine faith is also precious because it also functions as the thing that, that it functions as our pillar, as our anchor, the thing that we can hold on to when circumstances and situations happen in our life. So continue to, continue to exercise that faith and place that faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, standing on, on this side, after you have come and died and when resurrected, after the scriptures were already written, we believe not on, on account of the works, not on account of the miracles, but on account of what your word says about who you are. Lord, but it is our, it's our inclination to let our faith waver 
when we go through trials and when we suffer. God, but help us to remember that while we go through these things, that you remain the same, that you have not changed, that you are still our God, that we are still your beloved children. Help us to put this genuine faith into practice, to have this faith that comes from the revealed truths of your word, this faith by which we surrender our lives to you. A surrender that, that compels us to live our lives differently. And even when we go through trials and experience hardships, let us continue to believe in you. Let us continue to surrender our lives to you. And let us sur- continue to live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.